From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Groundsman, the big interview here. Joining me, as always, my fellow dungaree-clad buffoons, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. Giles, come in. How are you, mate? Hello, Grant. It's been a while. It's lovely to see you. Yeah, I'm all good. It's uh, it's Wimbledon here in the UK right now, So, um, and I live in Southfields, which is the tube station for said uh, tennis tournament. So it's absolutely chaos. It's hilarious. Everybody uh, in the UK goes tennis loopy for about two or three weeks, the Wimbledon effect, yep. as it's called. But even funnier is everyone seems to dress up in tennis outfits as well so it's just a jamboree here in Southfields. very entertaining that, ex- that explains your very tight very short white shorts Giles which uh, thankfully for the listeners they can only hear <laughs> the, the, the rustle as you move as you cross your legs Rog how are you mate I'm good uh, I'm, I'm very good uh, continue to look at the world of sport of course as we get into what the um, the, the the English people call the summer um, the season, um, we English, we're English, focused. Oh, course, much- you don't have that in Scotland, do you? I forgot. No, no, no. I mean, I mean the kind of like you know, from Henley to Wimbledon to Lords, you know, this it, it kind of like gets to me. You know, uh, I love it. I love all those sports, but it kind of like get. I mean, you you know me by now. It's it's a kind of split personality. So I take it all out on Giles. I must admit. <laughs> That's only because I get invited. (laughs) That's right, and I don't. But most split personalities, it's like one good off and one bad car. You you, you break the mould by being two arseholes, which is... is (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the the funny thing, talking about arseholes, is what's the name of that Australian tennis player that is really kicking it off? Curious. What's his name? Curious. Yeah, Uh, now, isn't it, isn't it funny? And, and what, um, they won't say it, of course, but what is clearly a desperately disappointing Wimbledon, uh, shorn of any box office, that all the loveys are now grasping uh, to the attractiveness, the box office of this uh, chap from Australia who behaves just awfully and shouldn't be in Wimbledon. And oh my, it's like, it takes you back to Elena Stasi and John McEnroe. But I tell you what, quietly, quietly, they will be on their knees thanking their God that that Australian is still in the competition. Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't disagree at all. Well, what else, Jens? We, we, uh, we have a returning guest joining us. I 
Brian, I'm delighted to get my chance to talk with Andrew Croker after missing the last one for reasons that had nothing to do with espionage, just the two of you talking about me being run off the road into a ravine. Um, but it's, as always, there's so much going on in the world of sport. Um, I dare say we'll be talking about things like live golf during our conversation with Andrew. You guys touched on it last time. But, Rog, well, anything in particular on your radar this week that's that's got you all hot and bothered? Well, no, I, I just think it's the general theme that um, some people have got a definition of sport, which I really understand. Sport, especially in the UK, has got a social meaning um, that goes way beyond commerce, way beyond the media sector and everything like that. I get it. and uh, But what I don't get is people realising that you need to change. And there's a lot of people that get really snarky and sneering about things like WWE, uh, UFC, uh, YouTuber boxing. And Colin's one of them, our mate Colin. You and Giles, I think, are, are similar in that respect. And I, listen, I get it, but, you know, only the people who adapt best are going to survive. And I think sport is in an existential moment. And sometimes I feel I'm the only one that thinks that, guys. I mean, help me out here. Am I going mad? No, Rush, do you know what I think? I've been thinking about this a lot because I do take your points. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I do take them. But I think there is a very blurred line these days between sport and entertainment. And while sport is entertainment, there are things that are about the sport, they're about the competition. These two YouTubers fighting each other, there's no sport. There's no competition there, Rog. It's just entertainment. It's not sport. Yeah. I'm sorry. It, it's it's just entertainment. I agree with and that. So, it's just entertainment. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I think we're all arguing about what this is, and we are seeing sport turned into entertainment for an audience that wants to be entertained, but they're doing it by stripping the sport out of it. And so it, it, it's difficult for me to make apples-to-apples comparisons between – I don't even know what the names of these YouTube boxers are. Honestly, I don't. Logan, someone, and Jake, someone. I don't know. Um, but I, I, it, it has no interest to me because there's no, there's nothing authentic about it. It's just entertainment, right? Whereas you want, want me to watch Sitsipas and Kyrgios at Wimbledon, that's real competition. There's something at stake, and it's every bit as entertaining because it, you know it's all kicking off and it's all going on fine. But beneath it there is something real estate. They're both trying to win a Grand Slam and and, and Wimbledon uh, above that. So I think we have this conversation over and over again, but as soon as you make sport entertainment, and this comes back to live, and this comes back to live and, and, and this idea that it's going to be entertaining, you know, golf but louder, I think is their catchphrase, the sport's gone, right? I, 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 I watched bits of that first live thing, and I think we spoke about this in Goal on Goal, Rog, but um, – you know, there's there's nothing to it. There's, there's, I'm watching Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson take a shot from the rough and miss the great, and they could give two tosses about it. They don't care. They're getting paid either way. And so what is sport and what's entertainment? I would say in, in many ways, in the truest form of sport, they are mutually exclusive. Well, I think that Simon Barnes said it when he was on the show whenever it was nine months ago. He's, sport can be entertaining but it doesn't have to be entertainment. And I think that was his yeah. definition. And and true sports fans, or indeed people who play sport, know that you're not necessarily doing it to entertain, though it could be the most extraordinary 
um, box office available. Um, but that's the differentiation. And you're right, the lines have blurred. And Roger's point, which is absolutely where I think he's bang on the money, which is about being on the money, is that the people who are funding sport um, are not people who are Corinthian, not people who are looking for... They're from the entertainment sport. business. Correct. They're from entertainment and they're looking for a buck. And therefore, that's where you have a, um, a, a dissection, is it? You know, it would be difficult. You know, Jerry Cardinal talked about, you know, understanding sport and being the fan. And I suspect in many ways, being a rower, which understands slow sports, which aren't necessarily the most gripping, can be. Sometimes an end of a race can be very exciting, but very often it really isn't. But if he's got his money hat on, is he going to be investing in sport that is dull? Or is he going to be investing in sport that has huge entertainment? And this is both an opportunity and a threat for sport. And I'm not sure we can ever get the two ends to, to entirely meet because there are open championships, the duel in the sun in, I think, 2016, 14, whichever it was, one of the great things with um, with Henrik Stenson and Phil Mickelson. But there have been open championships, which is dull as. And yet, you know, 250, 300,000 people will be going to St Andrews, more in fact, um, in a week's time, hopefully to watch uh, an amazing open championship. But even if they don't, they will have a lovely time. You see, uh, we've said this, but I agree with you, but it's not enough. You know, sport's problem is that, first of all, it resists saying it's part of the entertainment industry, despite the entertainment industry paying for it. I find that astonishingly arrogant. Uh, I'll take your money, but don't call me entertainment. Oh, but we're from the entertainment business. We need to make a buck. Don't care. We're still sport. I find that very arrogant. But beyond that, beyond that, going back to the Romans, who, whilst we were still living in caves, had it all sorted out, 2,000 years ago. Bread and circuses. The word is circus. The word is not arena or competition. It's circus. It's just entertainment. And that, I think, is missed. And the second thing that is missed is the bread part of it. You know, you can have all the sport you want and call it competition and say it's lovely, but somebody needs to pay the bill at the end of the evening. And the person that does that is the media sector. And I, I say, guys, with deep sincerity, they are not going to pay for journeyman and journeywoman sport for much longer. And Pac-12 and Live and European Super League is showing you all this. And I find sports reaction to that every time is, oh, how squalid. This will last 24 hours. Isn't it funny? They were so pathetic. Isn't Live terrible? Yeah, that's all true. But there's a waterfall coming down and you think you're going to stop it by the, 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 the first dike in the road. It's not going to stop. And, and, and Rod, there's, there's, there's one important yeah. facet of this bread and circuses thing that you're not focusing on, and that is the bread and circuses was really associated with the decline of the Roman Empire, right? This was, this was what they gave people. <laughs> That's cute. To, yeah, no, like to, that. To, no, but to distract from the fact that everything was falling apart, right? That's, that's where the bread – if we keep giving them bread and circuses, they won't notice that the world's falling apart. That's right, right? yeah. And so, and so your, your point is correct, but I would, I would count it. Because and today's and world isn't falling can, apart, Grant. No, it, it is. That's my point, right? But we can talk – and I want to talk to Andrew about this um, – because the world is falling apart. And when the world 
falls apart, the circuses go away. It just matters about the bread, right? It just matters about people need to be fed. And you are not going to get money thrown at entertainment events that we can make a load of money out of because the money is going to be needed elsewhere. That money is going to be needed to to keep companies afloat, to keep businesses afloat, to keep industries afloat, people employed, et cetera, et cetera. So it then goes back to the fundamentals. It goes back to the Corinthian principles of the sport because the circus folds up its tent and leaves town. See, this is where you, this is the focus of where you and I disagree, Grant, uh, with full respect. When that happens, I think choices need to be made. I'm a finance guy. At the end of the day, when money's tight, it's all about opportunity cost. That lovely phrase, opportunity cost. So if I've only got 10, whereas yesterday had 20 to spend, I've only got 10, and I can choose to cover the Irish Open or I can choose to cover the next fight in the WWE with Logan Paul uh, at the SummerSlam, I I know where I'm going, Grant. I know you don't like that answer. No, 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 I, no I, I respect the answer, but I think you're going to be surprised how few people give a toss about Logan, whatever his name is. Uh, see, that's where I think you're wrong. All they, all they uh-huh. want now is this beef. I, uh, think, that's, well, we'll I think that's all they want, Grant. We'll see, Roger. I think, I think you could get a field, you could get a field playing for the Irish Open um, much easier paying lower money because they want to win the Irish Open. Uh, I think the kind of money you're going to have to pay Thingy Bob to get in the ring and get his head fake splattered out by some other chancer is a complete waste of money. I think I think it'll go back to I think sports budgets will get cut. I think when you say I had twenty, I've now got ten. Fine, but I think it'll go from twenty to five, and then you're going to get to the point where okay, well, what can I sponsor? Well, the two YouTubers want fifteen. So there's no point me spending that for them. I can go and sponsor the Irish Open for three because it's been around for a hundred and whatever years and it'll still be there. And and live if live don't get critical mass, i.e. they get Oh, forget live. They're, 25 on the not... top. No, 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 I'm using that as an example, Roger. I'm using all these Johnny Come Lately flashy, throw a lot of money at it and we'll we'll win. If they don't get critical mass very quickly they're going to end up with budgets being cut and, 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 and what it will be an inferior product that they spent money on. And, they, and these, are, these are taps that get turned off, right? The Saudi money could be turned off tomorrow if something happens. Oil prices go down, whatever. That money could go away. I, I, and I, get, I get that, Grant. I get that, Grant. But you see, I, I think what the limitation to your argument is – is that you look at sport as some kind of like homogeneous little thing that, you know, uh, deserves to be on its own. I instead look at it as part of a much bigger industry. And sport isn't as big as it thinks it is. You know, uh, the gaming industry uh, can eat up movies, music, and, you know, the top five sports leagues and still have some change left over. So if budgets get tight, I don't see sport surviving. You know, this is the difference between you and me. You see it going back to its roots and it's all very, you know, let's call it pre-professional rugby type world, which would be lovely. Sadly, I see it disappearing if the money's not there, Grant, because the young well, kids Roger, don't care. Hang on, hang on. Football, cricket, uh, these things have been through 
depressions and inflations, and they've been through all these cycles before, right? And they've survived because they're clubs, they're community assets. No, because there was nothing else. There was there was nothing else, Grant. There was nothing Maybe. else. Let me give you Maybe. another example because I, I I thought about this a lot. Um, see when um, the guy with the hips came on the scene in the fifties, and the crooners Shakira. and the jazz. <laughs> the, the 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 crooners and the jazz players, they thought he was a little bit squalid as well, and and they actually thought worse than that. They thought he was a bad influence. You know, he was promoting black music and and all of that, and they thought it, he would be a flash in the pan. Elvis changed everything, you know. And 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 this I can take another example with the Sex Pistols, you know. Uh, when these things happen, the institutions go crazy insulting it for being a dreadful indictment about his, how society is collapsing. It's not. It's just society evolving. And, you know, I, I was just... Because I thought a lot about this. Giles made me think a lot about it. You know, uh, Bob Dylan said it best. Another guy from the music industry. Listen to this and substitute the words senators and congressmen for sports administrators. Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be who he who has stalled. There's a battle outside that is raging. It will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are a changing. Why can't sports see that this is this isn't new? This has always happened. It's a generational thing, Grant. I take your point, but if that's the case, Rog. Uh... Explain to me why it's different this time. Because they've got other things to do. When when you and I were growing up, and and the generation that is our generation who's has these issues just now, we had three television channels, and uh, we went out and played football or tennis or cricket in the roads every night. They've now got the gaming industry. They've now got TikTok, and they've got um, user generated content, and all of that kind of stuff. It's not as central as it was in the 70s and the 80s. So different to you, when the recession comes and it's coming, it's going to suffer. It's not going to go back to a previous version that was was purer. It's going to disappear apart from the very, very top end where the protagonists have actually crossed over and are entertainment personalities. Well... I guess we'll. I guess we'll find out, Rod. I'd. I'd. I'd take your point, as I said, but I, I don't necessarily think you're right. I think. I think it might not play out that simplistically. Charles, what do you think? Well, and Roger and I have had a go at each other this morning in a nice way, using the uh, very the, nice uh, way in a nice way. Digital channels, WhatsApp is our, our favoured sparring ground, um, and I'm kind of somewhere probably closer to you, Grant, than Rog, as, as Roger knows, and. Um, but at the, and I think there is something very fundamentally um, important to human beings that sport provides, and therefore I don't think it's obsolete. But I do take the point that Roger's saying is there is an awful lot of other things that the kids can do now that they couldn't do 20, 30 years ago. But I still think that fundamentally, and I may be wrong, I mean, I know that the Pro Jousting League has not done well <laughs> since uh, about 1547. Um, that, 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 that ran its course. 
But I just feel that somehow, because as you say, Grant, history shows that through Great Depressions, wars, you know, Wimbledon was shut off, as was the Olympics for, for years during the Second and First World War, but it came back. And I'm sure there were people speaking on the equivalent of hustings as opposed to podcasts and bleating about what they were, the dooms and portents of the future. I am still very, very positive that sport has such a fundamental importance to the human spirit that many of the sports will continue. How and the disruption that that um, Roger talks about that is required to adapt to society changes is, for me, what we probably none of us can crystal ball, but will keep us going in podcastry for a long time yet. Podcastry, nicely said. Well, listen, just we have uh, we have a guest joining us, and we should we should probably shut our big fat yaps and let and let him uh, join the conversation. What do you say? Yeah, fantastic. Let's welcome Andrew Croker back to, by popular demand, Are You Not Entertained? Croaks, welcome back to Are You Not Entertained? Super to have you back. Well, we had the show, I think it came out on, in June, early June. And weirdly, we got this enormous amount of people saying they wanted to hear more. So you're back. It's very strange, isn't it? Very strange. <laughs> Maybe it's because they could, couldn't hear me properly, but I have had a technical upgrade. So, Well, I would like to tell everybody that the, <laughs> the extraordinary thing is that we, we, we record the show, we can see our guests, so we can uh, really see the whites of their eyes. Uh, Andrew Croker has bought himself a very, very smart-looking microphone. Yeah. So uh, everything you hear will be in the greatest sound quality. Yes. For those who didn't hear part one, um, one of the things that Croaks, who's been a, a literary figure as well as many other types of things, he's been involved in the sports industry, had an idea, has an idea for a book, which is the 10 deals that shape sport as we know it. And Roger and Grant and I really thought about that is that one, those 10 deals that, that Croaks has got are fascinating, but also how maybe how they, they will shape future deals that have not yet happened or are in process. So we thought this was a, a belting place to start. Hey, Roger. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, listen, we mentioned the first one on the last show, which is the famous 1960 handshake with um, McCormick and, and Arnold Palmer. And, and of course, golf is is top of the agenda again today. You know, um, Andrew, I, I look at it and I keep asking myself now, if the majors are not in the control of the of the tours, the PGA and um, the, the European tour, uh how can they defend themselves? I, I don't see how they can possibly defend themselves, Andrew. Oh, that's a very good question. I'll just tell you, it's funny that I was, um, the, the the quote that I think sort of uh, sort of inspired me to revisit this was the, the, the famous Churchill line about the farther back you could look, the farther forward you are likely to see. And I just read an amazing book by Eric Larson, which I would recommend to everybody called The Splendid and the Vile, um, which is really reading all about the the late 30s and uh, and the start of the war and the parallels with what's going on at the moment with uh, our, our friend in Russia. Um, coming back to the golf, yes, it's interesting that when you um, look at all these deals and where there has been revolution and, and you know, disruption, there's a very fine line between sort of dis- disruption and pioneers, isn't there? So disruption is often seen as sort of a bad thing, but often it's a good thing. Um, and it's the sports that have this, you're absolutely right, Roger, it's the sports that have a very robust constitution, of, of which football, I would say, is probably the best example, is that you know no one has ever tested, really, 
the the, the the pyramid structure where you know FIFA runs it, the confederations run that, and then the leagues and associations operate underneath it. And and the closest run we've had to it was obviously was the um, European Super League, uh, which um, crashed and burned incredibly quickly. I think in golf, you are absolutely right. Uh, and I was thinking about it, funnily enough, comparing cycling the Tour de France and really, really the Masters is one of the majors and can the masters do whatever they want to do? Well, uh, yes, they can. Uh, and therefore if, if you're a golfer now and said, I want to play in the majors and live, or I just want to play the majors. And in a way, it's a bit like what Serena Williams has done in the last stages of her career saying, you know, I've given all this to the WTA tour. I still like to keep playing, but I want to have, you know, babies and do other things that people in their late 30s do, and I'll play when it suits me. And uh, I think from that point of view, it is you're heading into a new era. And Giles and I were talking yesterday or, or earlier about the the whole point that sport has to be credible. And how do you, I mean, clearly live has at the moment, a credibility issue is are these serious events. But across all sports, you would say increasingly, in the second and third tier events, do they have the credibility that will drive television revenues and spectators and the rest of it? Or does it just become wallpaper and betting fodder? Well, I mean, Andrew, you know, riddle me this because I can't get beyond this a little bit. You know, the tours, like almost everything in sport is a bundle where you've got box office stars and you've got a uh, journeyman. Um, when you've got somebody empowered by technology that allows you to see exactly the value of every star and what they generate and whatever the KPI is, whether it's it's uh, views or clicks or, or, or pay-per-view or whatever it is, n- nobody is going to let the bundle live undisturbed. Somebody, and we're right in the middle of it now, is always going to say to a Ricky Fowler, or to a Brooks Kepka, look, you're currently taking out, um, you know, 20 million and you're playing 30 events a year. I can get you 50 million and you play half of that because that's your value. I can't see how the, the tours can defend against that if they don't have the majors as a deterrent. I can't see how they survive, mm. Andrew. Well, it, it, well, a, it's going to become a lawyer fest, and we we know that, and we're, and we're about to see that crystallise. I think over the next couple of weeks, you know what's happening in Scotland. Um, you, you know, you still got players who are members of tours. I mean, I think I think Rory McIlroy paid got paid whatever it was two and a half million appearance fee to play in the Canadian Open uh, two years ago, whatever it was, three years of the last time he, before he defended it. And you go to say, well, you're still members of a tour. I mean, a lot of these sports are trade associations or trade unions. And we know American sport is very heavily unionized. I mean, the ATP is, it's a union of of the tennis professional acting in their own interest. And yet still Djokovic decides to go off and create his own player union while he was still on the player council. So it is always going to be, whether you call it a free market or whatever, but I agree with you, market forces will always dictate and there'll always be some other way. Uh, to make money and, and decide what you want to do, gents. Can I can I intercede here and, I, and ask a question because um, I've thought a lot about this and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, Andrew. If I, if I could ask them, um, there's a timing aspect to this which intrigues me a great deal because 
what's happened with sport over the last, you know, the Premier League era, let's call it back to the early 90s to now, is sport has grown on a wave that has been dictated by the times where everybody wanted to get rich. Everybody's looking to make a buck. There's been these enormous tailwinds, and we've spoken a lot about that on AYNE, about, um, about the private equity money coming in. And, and I hate to take this back to my financial roots, but this has all happened in an era of free capital, essentially. You could borrow as much as you want to, to pay up to get these big deals done. You could, you could almost bankrupt yourself because you could make the debt payments or roll the debt over. We now find ourselves in a very different time. And from, from the business perspective, obviously, capital is going to become expensive again. So people are going to have to be a lot more careful about what they promise people they're going to pay them. But more importantly to me, perhaps, is the public perception of this, whereby everybody supposedly has been getting wealthier for the last 20, 30, 40 years, you could argue, um, because the, the, the standard of living in the West particularly has increased significantly. And yet we now find ourselves at a time where people are struggling to afford to fill their gas tank up. They're struggling to afford to put food on the family's tables. They're struggling to make their mortgage payments, which have doubled in many cases. And things are going to have to be sacrificed. And you're already reading articles in the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times about how people are cutting back on this and that. So to me, to bring along live at this particular point where you are pinning everything around how much money these guys are going to get paid. And, and it, you know, I have no idea how much Rory got paid for defending the Canadian Open the other week. It was a great tournament. I don't tournament think he got paid anything for defence, but he did, so he did get paid for the, the – No, no, but I mean in prize money. I have no oh, idea what prize, prize money, money was for that. I, I literally no idea. I, I, and I know I could give you a ballpark what, what the winner of Wimbledon would get, but I don't know because there's no, not an awful lot of fuss made about it. But is there a chance that this – Live golf, which is all about the money because there is no tradition, has come along at a time when very quickly people could get remarkably anti golfers being paid $4 million to play three rounds and win a golf tournament. And you, you have a public turning against sport that is, that is fixated with money. I think uh, that's an extremely good point, And I agree with you. And I think that the, and this is going to be an issue, I'll tell you, in my own personal little sphere, you know, my my season ticket at Chelsea is going from £1,200 to £3,900. Now, that was under the old regime, and they've now come back and said it's actually going to be about 25% less than that. And admittedly, it hadn't gone up since 2005. And you could, with Chelsea, you if we were going to have a debate about geopolitical investment in sport, it would probably be, it could, that could probably make your top 10 as well. But I, th- I, I, I agree with you, Grant. I, th- I think people will look at it. I, it it's strange that... Football, which was historically seen as a working man's sport, but no longer, I would say, um, we sort of accept that it is a it is a sort of free market and therefore we want the best players. And people have always equated in football, particularly, that good business management, as demonstrated by Manchester United, maybe not just at the moment, but in their heyday, that if you ran it well as a business, that this equated to success on the field. So therefore, we were all prepared to just say, yeah, look, well, you know, if we run a good business, we can get better players and therefore we'll win. So everyone was in the same boat. But I agree with you when it's not a team that you're affiliated to and it is just something up there on the screen as entertainment and a glorified exhibition. I agree it is vulgar. I mean, and I think that I don't believe anybody really begrudges the players doing it, do they? Because you just go, you know, Paul Casey, I think is the latest. You would just say he's 44 years old and he's been struggling with injuries and, uh, why would you not? 
I, I also um, am vaguely amused by this, as, as people might know, is that for 12 years I spent a lot of time spending money, uh, not mine, but bank money, on getting the best golfers to come to golf tournaments. And I can promise you that their, uh, their managers and indeed the players, um, despite being part of the establishment, inverted commas, were very keen to look after themselves. It didn't matter what tour they played on. They wanted the cash. Interested, as we go back to the 10 deals that we've, we've talked about, the second one, and it sort of really reflects for me because we had uh, Barry Hearn on the show, as you know, after you, Andrew, and the, the sort of similarities between Barry and I suspect Don King, and you talk about the 1974, the rumble in the jungle of getting... Um, Ali and, and Foreman together and that sense of box office and creating something that was bigger than just a boxing bout. It was something that really sort of defined modern heavyweight boxing, I guess, or, or was one of the very key moments. Is that Was that deal really important in terms of why you rate it high there because of what you've seen onwards is where we see where boxing and fighting has gone in general with UFC, etc. Well, I, I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but I, I, I've always, uh, in my, what I laughingly call my career, uh, there was a massive crossover and is remains so across football, I was going to say rugby and rugby league, if you're Nadine Dorries, but uh, for the rest of us, um, anyway, you know what I mean, uh, cricket, tennis, you know, there was that sort of family. And then the two outliers, which I always sort of couldn't really get my head around were horse racing, even though I'd worked in it briefly, and boxing, is that it was just another world. And uh, and dealing with boxing promoters and over the years, the ones I did deal with, I, I just found it uh, mystifying. It's very strange. You know, in the normal conventions of sport where you you buy some rights, it's warranted, you know who's going to be playing or competing, but boxing is 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 crazy, as we know. So I think it was, I think it was, you know, it was an event that captured the world. And it it was probably the first time, I, I don't know if anyone else can think of one, where, you know, you'd actually had events being transplanted, not to another country, but to another continent. And if you see now, for example, with the Saudis, you know, taking, I think, Roger will tell me, the Italian Super Cup, I think, and maybe... Yeah, again. Cup going, going to Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the infamous... Um, and and uh, Joshua and, again. And uh, Richard Trudemore's 39th step moment, uh, John Bucker moment with the 39th step, where, you know, was, you know yeah. which um, was, was probably his only bad idea he had in all the time that he was there, I would say. So I, I think that it just sort of always struck me, in, in terms of boxing, you could probably come up with 20 extraordinary deals. Um, I think what's happened in boxing probably most recently, is zone changing the, the the model that you've had in America, where, for example, you know, you have fights. The culture in America, is, you know, as a fight was on HBO, it would be $120. You would pay for that as a pay-per-view event. You would get all your mates around and you would watch a big fight. And then to, to change that model to $10 a month and, you know, that the mega deal was, was like with Canelo. And I think now obviously that model has changed, but I think now, particularly Matchroom, I was at the, on Saturday night, I was um, at the 40th birthday party of Matchroom, which um, for those not familiar with it, that's Barry uh, Barry Hearn and his son, Eddie. And Eddie has really, particularly on the boxing, completely t- taken, over, taken on the reins. But that's a business that is really, really run very, uh, as you, you guys know, I mean, it's run like a family business. Um, you know, the, the, the welfare of the, the darts players and the snooker players and everything, I think they are aware that these are people who are part of a, 
a circus or a show, whatever you can, but they have a very long career. I mean, I don't know how long Michael Van Gerwen's been throwing arrows or how long Ronnie O'Sullivan's been playing, but it's a long time. And therefore, it's a completely different dynamic to, you know, a boxer who can have one fight or is one fight away from not fighting again. You just, it's very different, isn't it? So I think that that, you know, boxing, and also then you get into the whole thing of how boxing has become this. Bastardized or hybrid, you know, KSI and Logan Paul and Logan Paul fighting Floyd Mayweather, and then all the stuff around UFC and WWE. It's 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 very it's very different, and particularly as it appeals to a a younger non-core audience, I would say. So I can't remember what the question was now, but I mean, it's um. But Andrew, let's 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 continue on that because this is one of your ten deals. But uh, I would suggest, um from a different generation that the KSI, uh, Logan Paul deal um, was equally as important. Uh, people will be throwing their hands up in horror here, but they put down a playbook there, which is sport um, no longer sets up its tent, sets up its circus and says, gather round, gather round. They actually go to where the audience is already are, in the case of KSI and, and Logan Paul, YouTube, and they create an event with them. They're not really sports people. And the reason why I would say that this is the, the poster child of 2020 sport is if you look at the energy drink that they have just launched, Prime, mm. you cannot get your hands on really? it. They have got a shot, Andrew, of taking on Gatorade. Yeah. Um, and, and they're not going to stop. So, you know, uh, the, 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 that... You know, because I'm going to try and link your 10 original deals to what I think their equivalent is today. That, together with uh, what Dan Porter Overtime did with Overtime Elite and the basketball players uh, skipping college, I think that is the mirror image of your um, your um, rumble in the jungle thing. I think it's really important. I, I suspect that, you know, it was also, it was pioneering, clearly, that he went to a foreign government which was fairly um despotic as i recall and actually got somebody to pay for an event who wasn't a broadcaster i suppose or a sponsor in a, in a way it was that's why it was uh, particularly groundbreaking and and just as anthony joshua is off uh, to saudi arabia next month again so i, I think it's, it's different i mean i i used to work uh, somebody there was a guy called ian white i expect you remember him giles uh, the white company and he was very much a, what I would call a creative, and he, and uh, he's he's not with us anymore. But he was a great guy, and he taught me a lot. Um, and in sponsorship, he always said you have to have reference point events, and a reference point event was about the quality of the competition, the date, and the venue. And and if you look to all reference sport reference point sports, it's where they are. And you, you know, can you transmit? Can you say we're not going to have a Monaco Grand Prix? But we're going to, Las Vegas will be the new Monaco Grand Prix. Now there are some people thinking that, and I say, and you know, for example, I, there's a very good chance there won't be a French Grand Prix next year. And you say, you know, to me, I mean, if you saw what happened at the weekend, you know, 160,000 people there, bonkers qualifying, bonkers race, brilliant racing, terrible crashes, which fortunately nobody was hurt. But it was amazing entertainment, and I, I'm afraid trotting around the streets of Baku is not the same for me. I mean, but maybe that's gone. Old school. I have to agree, and, and I, 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 Roger and I go backwards and forwards about this all the time, Andrew. Um, and 
I, you know, I'm very curious as, as to your thoughts on, on, on this as, as a bigger question, and that is this, um, so this fascination with, with the new audience um, and how everything needs to be shorter and slicker and <laughs> sound bites are the, are the, are the, are well, the buzzwords. It, isn't it fantastic? The, the, the moment that Lewis Hamilton said, we've got to stop these old guys giving opinions, I, I, said, I said, oh, so hang on a minute. So we don't like the old racist opinions, but, but we're allowed to be ageist. But, and then I said, well, maybe I'm too old to express that opinion. Maybe, I mean, in fact, maybe all four of us are too old to express these opinions. And I do remember, you know, that I, the corollary to this would have been that Bernie Eccleston would say, mate, they're the ones who buy the Mercedes. Because all those years ago, when he was asked why he didn't do social media, he said, 17-year-olds don't buy Mercedes. Now, right. my right. theory was that Bernie, if I've said this before, I apologise. My theory was that Bernie didn't do social media in general, around F1, because he believed there was a massive potential there, but it was better to sell the potential to private equity than actually try and do it himself and fail. So I think he, that was another point. He's a genius. Unfortunately, he, he managed to put his foot in his mouth on a, on a much bigger scale over the last few days. But there we go. But, but it's, 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 you know, this, this, um, this idea that, that you're catering for a new audience, a new generation, and, and they want different things, and they want, um, you know, they want a game that, Guys like us don't recognize. And I take Roger's point, and, and he's in many places proven to be right. But I'm again, I keep coming back to this. I, I feel very much like the times are changing um, in, in, in broader society, and it feels as though we're in for a period more like the 70s where, where money is much tighter than it has been for, for a long time. And I just wonder your, your views on whether sport – based as it is around tradition in many cases, is cyclical and that we are, we've seen this era where everybody's gotten rich and everyone's gotten blingy and everything's gotten shorter and snappier and, and faster. But ultimately, if that does die away because people can't afford to do this stuff anymore, you are left with people that love the game for the game and prices have to come down, and replica shirts won't get sold, and all, all the things that happen will return sport to its roots. And, and I wonder if you are like me and believe that sport is, is the audience for sport is cyclical, but ultimately it comes back to true sports fans, or whether, you know, like Roger says and, and speaks about very eloquently, we're in a new paradigm where sport is, is evolving. It's not revolving. Yeah, I think that's, I, I, I agree with you. I think that... It is an absolute truth that um, if you if you show sport being played in empty stadia, it's a turnoff. I mean, it's just it's, it, it just is. It's like kissing your sister. I mean, um, I think Giles, you and I were talking about it. Is that the, the crowds, the test matches, and we know test cricket is seen as old school and the rest of it. These these fifth day crowds have been stuffed with children enjoying it as a day out, and I'm still sufficient. They go in for free, didn't they? Actually they go in for attending free. a live yeah. sports event. Yeah, it, nothing, nothing is better than that. Now I don't care how whether it's three D, it's in a holograms, it's projected in space. Still, you've got to be there and being there, and the part of being there is what it's about. And uh, and uh, when I saw the horrors of Wembley last year and, and and Champions League final this year, you do despair because you think if people are put off actually going to live games, then that will be a great shame. But I don't think you will ever replace that. But you're right. There will have to be some sort of correction on ticket pricing. I mean, uh, and there's been endless things written about this recently. You just you just can't keep um, 
hiking the prices and think people are going to pay it. Uh, I, I know there's sort of anomaly in, in, in America where you know, the way they buy and sell their tickets there, but generally, and particularly football as a barometer, um, you need you need a full ground. Otherwise, it's not a game as far as I'm concerned. Does that mean, therefore, that what Grant is saying and what you're saying is, um, because I think everybody, I know Roger's views are, are very strong on this, and I know he's right, that, that there has to be this sense of... Um, this seems to be getting into a faster and faster spiral, that actually there is a correction within the sport, a societal correction, and therefore sport follows with that correction. And is the need then for kind of what would be more romantically binary traditional sport where people may be paid less and that there is the inflation stops and we that we have a correction back or do we just keep going and keep going? Because I'm, I'm very torn with this. I, I'm learning a lot from Roger, particularly... <clears throat> around the finance of sport. It's something that I've, I've been able to do through this podcast. It's kind of like being open university, but with a Scotsman, which is quite fun. Um, but but at the same time, I know that if I go and watch great sport and it's very simple, just the best two people, not the best in the world, but the people doing the best they can do, and it's binary, I am very turned yeah, on. Yeah, I think you're it. right. Well, I, I, think, I think also, I mean, there are... <laughs> The, the quality of the entertainment that provided and the reinvestment in in stadia will uh, you know to, to use the uk as another example again but you know post post hillsborough where the legislation forced us or, or the english to to reinvest in stadia uh, the investment in stadia in america where you've just got these massive financial centers in all all cities where they have got the infrastructure and the support to build amazing venues and you know i see like uh, you know Redbird buying Milan, and you look at that and say that there's still the amount of money that needs to be spent on infrastructure of sporting venues around Europe is we are falling behind. And you, if you don't provide 21st century facilities and entertainment, these people, uh, people are not going to put up with these crappy old stadia or venues. You know, you want to go to you know the reinvestment of whether it's the Masters or it's Roland Garros or, or, you know, Madison Square Garden. These places are permanently being regenerated and what people like AEG are doing with Stadia, but you see an awful lot of very average venues. Roger, tell me, I mean, how is it that two of the biggest football clubs in the world share a stadium and it's just ancient? Politics, Italian politics. It's Italian politics. The, the, and certain people haven't been paid what they need to yeah. get paid, so it doesn't and happen. It, it, it's, it, it's amazing, isn't it, really, when you think well, listen, it is amazing, but listen, I think um, we, we really touched on the nerve here, all three of you. And I, I want to come back to number eight on your list, which is uh, Billie Jean <laughs> King and equal pay for women. Yeah. Now, Grant says something, you know, Grant and I know each other stick on this a lot now. And, he, and he's right. And we've been talking about recessions coming, money's going to get tighter. And he thinks it's going to go back to everybody, sport being the way it was and just poorer. I don't. What I think is going to happen is when money gets tighter, the journeyman and the second and third and fourth right sport is going to get canned. And the reason I want to link this to your number eight and Billie Jean King, and, and you know, this podcast is kind of famous for just saying things others don't. Uh, I don't think it is in any way fair that women's tennis players get the same as men. 
Um, and the reason I say it is a financial reason. Um, simply even, you know, you know how uh, broadcasters work, uh, uh, it's, it's cost per minute of content. They play three sets, we play five. Even on that basis alone, if everything else was like for like, they are a more expensive form of content, which means that when money is tighter, you're going to go for more bang for buck. Secondly, Wimbledon sells its rights, unless I'm mistaken, all together, women's and men's together, which gives air cover to the idea that they should get paid themselves. My question to you, Andrew, and I hope you don't duck it, is if men's tennis at Wimbledon and men, women's tennis at Wimbledon were sold separately, would the number be the same? Wearing my performance zone hat as I as I did and sometimes still do and have a relationship with the WTA, I'm uh, sympathetic with all of the arguments. If the answer to your question is, if there was a tender put out tomorrow separately for in the in the tennis slams for women and men separately, yes, the men's number would be bigger. Caveat: If there was the women's leading player was Romanian and she was nailed on to win it, then in Romania that might do better as it would have done when the stars was playing or whatever. So I don't know. The thing is you, you simply cannot, um, as far as the slams is concerned, that, that that's where that was Billie Jean's battleground and the logic to say that the women and the, and the men are equally part of the entertainment. And while we go to the tournament and all the rest of it, I get that. Uh, you know, you, if you look at the way the, you know, and the finances of, these tournaments, which are owned by their national federations, that money goes back into the sport. Everybody knows that the, the surplus from Wimbledon uh, gets distributed to the LTA, who run tennis across uh, men and women. So the slams, I don't have an issue with it, really. I mean, what's interesting is you've got an organisation like ATP Media, which has got 10 tournaments in it, and it's called ATP Media, but actually I think six or seven of those tournaments are mixed tournaments. They're men's and women's tournaments, but they sell those collectively. and sponsorship wise they probably ought to have some sort of integration as well the rest of it, uh, it, it it's it's a free it's a free market individual tournaments but no but it isn't a it isn't well, a the free ATP market, and WTA is bundled and their own. but it's bundled it's bundled this is the point about everything i'm seeing no, on this podcast sport if, is bundled people choose to bundle their events to sell them from a broadcast or sponsorship point of view that's not the same as the the argument for um same prize money. But Roger, to answer the question is, if the ATP and the WTA were to merge, which has been debated endlessly, if they sit down at the table and on day one, the WTA says, well, it's a condition of this agreement that we shared television revenues 50-50, it won't happen. Now, obviously, you could do a pro rata based on how much data you generate, how many hours you generate, et cetera, et cetera. But you've got to get all those warranties and undertakings from the individual players, how many games they're going to play. That is very, very, that's plate spinning and is very complicated. So, uh, but, and it's the same. But, have the same, but you take the point, the Andrew, that I'm Roger, making. With, with football is that you're going to say, you, you know, you can have it. In, it's the same everywhere. Hmm? It's the same everywhere. You're correct. It's what I was saying earlier. Um, any league, any tour is de facto a subsidiary from the box office to the journeyman. And I am saying for four years on this podcast, the market will prevail and rip that up. And you've started to see it. You're starting to see it on, on Pac-12. You're seeing the big colleges saying, fuck you, I'm going to get what I'm deserving. Somebody, you're not giving it to me. I'm going to take my value to somebody else that will. 
Why do people think this isn't going to continue, Andrew? I don't know. I'm so pleased we're allowed to swear. I can now make my points much better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, you know, it's like if you're the, if you're a football association, you're going to come under pressure to pay your your men's team the same as as the women's team. I mean, I think that's already happened in, in the USA. Now, I can understand that because you're not paying their salaries. You're, you're compensating them for paying for the national team. But Barcelona are not going to pay the same... Um, <laughs> to their basketball players or to their female footballers as they play their male footballers, obviously. Otherwise, they'd be even in trouble. So why but does that, Wimbledon do it? Why does Wimbledon do it? Why, why does Wimbledon do well, it? Well, because because why? the US Open did it first and they all had to follow suit. And, and otherwise, they well, would just... Well, okay, get... well, why do they all do it? Is there, you know what sport is doing, Andrew? It's shooting itself in the foot. If the market forces... You can't, yeah. that's tooth, you can't get that toothpaste back in the tube. That's not going to happen. And don't forget, also, you... Once you set the prize money level, uh, I mean, Wimbledon could say the, the total prize fund is coming down by 25% and the same players would turn up, leaving aside, obviously, the Russian thing this year. But, you know, it's like if the Masters drop their prize money by 30%, would it make any difference to the field? Not a jot. Not one. But that's not the, po- that's not, that's not the point I'm making. No, 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 my I'm point is, to... Roger, on you is go, that Brian. the sharing the prize money equally, Wimbledon can just say the prize pot is... I don't know, 10 million, whatever it is, and we'll split it equally. But they could just as easily say, well, next year it's 8 million. We haven't got any money, so we're going to split that equally. But whatever they make the prize pot, they'll split it equally, period. Roger, I, I think the other important thing to understand, Rog, is is the external pressure on people in in the modern times for this equality thing. And the, and, and the importance or the perceived importance of that um, in the eyes of those making decisions, will will make them do things that don't make sense. Look, look at the US. As long as you acknowledge right that they don't make sense, as long as you acknowledge they don't make sense, I'm happy. No, I, I, t- I take your point completely. I mean, and there's been plenty of stuff written about the average time on court, the men, and et cetera, et cetera, and viewing figures and what have you. So I, I totally get your point, but that doesn't mean it's going to change. Well, I tell you, the market will change it. The, your defence, guys, is uh, the power of the majors is so strong that they would come and play for nothing. Maybe, and I keep saying the majors are different, but for the tours uh, and for football leagues and for Pac-12, it's not enough. As hard times come, Grant, and this is this is your area as much as mine, when hard times come, finance guys that are cold start saying, where am I getting most bang for buck? And I am not taking women's tennis at the same cost as I I could get men's tennis. I'm just not. And if they are structured sport such that I have to do that, you know what? I'll go and finance somebody to do a challenger league. I don't see why people don't see this. It seems like consequential logic to me. But Rog, rather than open a pipeline... The U.S. is going to Venezuela and Iran to beg for more oil. It's the same principle, right? There are certain ideas that are in the public conscious that equality is more important, and so we can't be seen to be bucking that trend. We can't be seen to be bucking the green trend. We can't be seen to be bucking the equality trend. So we will make non-economical decisions because the backlash, if we are seen to be you know, going backwards, is going to be that much bigger, and it will cost us in the long run. I think you're just going to get around in circles, Roger, on this one because it's 
It is what it is. No, no, no. Listen, guys, it's not round in circles. Four years down the line, we are significantly in my direction. Nobody four years ago at the start of this podcast would have thought we were talking about the disruption of Pac-12, uh, live um, European Super Leagues. Nobody. This isn't, this isn't a circular argument. All I am, I still see Andrew and, and, and the guys that come on our podcast normally aren't in this category because we choose them. But there's too many people in sport that don't get this. That ain't good enough in 2020. No, I agree with that, Roger. No. I was I was talking about circles, really, with the, with the argument about uh, women's prize money, because I, th- I think that there's that's pretty exhaustive. But I, I, as far as the getting rid of secondary content or not paying for content that doesn't work, and also coming back to the old bundling, and bundling used to be a much bigger thing now. I think people are much more interested in saying, no, I want that. Um, cherry picking, and I don't want that. So I, I agree with you 100%. And, and that is where the free market will dictate. You just say, well, look, I just don't want that, or that is worth X to me, period. I do think it's interesting, though, a point that Grant was making, though, that sport, when you think about it, and this is very much in the Simon Barnes, Ed Smith kind of area, has always just been a reflection of the society we live in. And right now we're coming to the end perhaps of an era, as 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 Grant says, of, of cheap money where we're going into a time maybe of 50 years ago of, of a much tighter time. And therefore sports model will have to change too. We've been on an upward uh, trend for a very long time. I mean, golf is out of control. Forget nation state of Saudi. It was out of control when I was at HSBC. If you wanted the best player in the world, you had to put in a no-cut event brackets called the world golf championship and you had to pay players and yeah. everybody denied it but it happened and if you wanted the very greatest golfer of the modern era and i'm not including jack but if you wanted tiger woods you paid for him but charles let me ask you this it is because if you if you said very loosely that the, the major revenue streams for sport are uh, live attendance media rights and sponsorship and commercial revenue uh, we know that uh, from what grant was saying you know it's going to come under pressure on the on the fan front because just the, the ticket prices uh, we know that media rights are just not going to go up in per, you know there's been corrections already and uh, is it an oversimplification to say that sponsorship is often seen as a luxury item or from a marketing point of view and then when you when you're back to the wall and you're firing people and you're laying people off and there's a recession it's going to be the first casualty well maybe not as much as it used to be for the simple really? reason now that well i think the value of the fan data and it's again something we've talked a lot on this podcast over the last four years is that the value of the passionate fan and knowing who the passionate fan is as a data set is incredibly useful as yeah. a new form of channel marketing for sponsors, particularly yeah. as we go into a Web3 world, particularly where we go into a, a world where rights holders need to know absolutely every part of their customer profiling. Do that, that becomes very valuable to sponsorship. So I believe that sponsorship, for those sponsors who get it, and for those rights holders who understand their value, i.e. their fan base, then they've got a real chance at properly monetizing. Unfortunately, a lot of rights holders are still peddling the same old stuff, which means it does become the first casualty in a in a slowdown. Yeah, so I think it's it has been bought in a much more sophisticated scientific way than it was, say, 30 years ago. And therefore, it, it can be stress tested much better than it used to be. Well, one of the, the conversations I had with someone the other day was to say they were bemoaning that hospitality 
has almost become a, a bad word um, that somehow one shouldn't entertain, that human beings are not allowed to spend time with each other and then business being done. And I think that kind of follows this sort of vaguely dystopian world that exists where no one is allowed to smile or enjoy each other or indeed invite people to anything. And I think that will bounce back a bit too. People still need people. We've spent two and a half years on on Zoom calls and team calls unable to see real people and spend real time with people where business is often done best. So I think all of these things are corrections. I think that the the sports industry will will do well out of sponsorship if it heeds the, the lessons of, of of data mining and understanding fan base. I think you're right. The media the, the media um valuation is maybe reaching a peak, but it will continue to evolve, whether you call it OTT or whatever else it is. Um, but what I am most heartened about, and I know even Roger it is at his most punchy with me as we have these Monday morning to and fro's on our, our WhatsApp, which are quite fun, and they just sort of it's like clearing the throat. It just gets the week. It's like having a tequila shot at eight a.m. in the morning. It just it just. Gets I need things. somebody to hit after a quiet weekend. I need to hit somebody, and it's, it's normally the- you, Giles. <laughs> and it's it's I, I have fortunately I don't have two glasses of jaw, um, but but undoubtedly. The, the sports industry at its heart, and it's what Grant's been talking about as well, is there is nothing like going to a live event. And actually, even, Roger, the Katie Boulder uh, event that you talked about, the, the match on Saturday, where I think the poor girl was absolutely broken, she she did fold like a deck chair. But the day before, or the two days before, she put in one of the great performances it, with a, 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 a narrative behind that her grandmother had just died. She beat the defending champion. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the house at Wimbledon. And that was actually the highlight of my Wimbledon I, I didn't know today. any of that. Yeah, I, so as always, it's the story, it's the live performance, it's that. I mean, good God, test match. You know, look at all these cricket writers. Four months ago, English test cricket had been written off. And now it is about the most exciting sport you can watch in the summer as England decide through change of personnel and management that every ball needs to be hit for six and and Johnny Bairstow is is the new Botham well he's the new Stokes who was the new but that's not test, but that's not test cricket though Giles is it let's be honest that isn't test cricket right? that's, that's yeah no absolutely but <laughs> but that's that's them saying well we, we can't beat 2020 or the 100 we'll join them there you go that's it inevitable which inevitable. is a wonderful evolution of the sport where 2020 has actually enhanced where everyone was worried that test match would become obsolete because of 2020 or IPL or the 100 in fact what you've done is it may have given it another tequila shot to test match cricket which um has been i mean i have not been able to take my eye off well, the cricket all yeah, summer exactly. well number 3 on the list is is cricket and you always ask people for cricket and they, are, they it depends what your age is you either say kerry packer um, because that was in 1977, uh, or you say uh, the IPL. But the I, uh, and while absolutely it was disruption, uh, Kerry Packer saying, "I've had enough of this," and he created something, and he went up against everybody. The IPL was more of an evolution, and I think the IPL is very interesting how it has evolved. And I mean, I think if Liv had followed a, an IPL route and tried to do something within a very specific window, which fitted in with the other schedule, unless it, it, they might have had a very different outcome, or may still do that. Um, you know, the IPL, what's very interesting with, uh, I had, um, some of you will know Ravi Krishnan, I had Ravi with me at the weekend, who was 
uh, IMG India with me in the 90s and then was very involved with Manoj Padali the, when they set up the Rajasthan Royals where, you know, the, the and the IPL franchises, particularly that Indian can be a little bit of the Wild West doing business, is they have created a structure where they've created real commercial entities that, you know, I, I think they paid $67 million at that original IMG-driven auction for their for the for a franchise, which I think may have been one of the cheapest. And now, now it's... You know, they, they've just done a refinancing. I think Redbird's involved, and uh, and the you there is liquidity and a real structure in it that you may not see in other sports in other countries. It's quite remarkable, I think. And and obviously the TV revenues are are sensational. But you are talking about a one sport country, and we don't know many of those. Um, you know, maybe Brazil and football, but you know it, it's quite unique. Is that it's it's cricket, and you talk about polarization. It's RPL and not much else. Well, it's cricket, and not much else. Anyway, at least so it's a that's a very interesting example. But I mean, if you if you look at if you look at cricket there, um, this takes us into one of the other big issues with sport, which is the competing governing bodies. These governing bodies, who are as times get tougher, um, and media rights and everything you said, Andrew, are maybe going to be under pressure. What are they going to do? They're going to throw more events into uh, the calendar. And is is you know the the winner is going to be the one that is the most valuable, so you know the the the, the, the you say correctly they decided to do it in a little window and they live together nicely. I would suggest Andrew that that won't last much longer, and that uh, it will be a little bit like some kind of growth that ultimately the IPL will dominate everything in cricket and there'll be less space for test matches, etc. etc. I can't see it going any other way. Well, you know, there, there, there has been you know, open debate about having two IPLs, but rather than making it one big longer one, actually, that, that, that you would have two. Obviously, there's the 100, which has been a huge uh, investment. But it's still, even though it, you know, it's the £500 gorilla, it's like just as basketball has the NBA, cricket has the... Uh, BCCI, which is the which is the Indian board, and uh, and and cycling has ASO. There there are sports where you have got a worldwide governing body, but very often it's the it's the elephant in the room that's actually calling a lot of the shots and making a lot of the decisions. But I think cricket's done pretty well. It's it's a pretty robust structure, and I agree with Giles. They have it has evolved. I mean that they are becoming increasingly divergent as sports. They're very rarely that you've got someone like a. Um, Kane Williamson, who captains all three disciplines in for for New Zealand, whereas in others we're getting having different teams completely and different squads completely. So, uh, but that's that's sort of where it's going. Okay, right. Let's go on to number nine in your list, um, the nineteen eighty four oh, yeah. Olympics. Yeah. Um, this, of course, um, is again our sponsor question. Sports Digita, that amazing presentation tool that is used by most of sport, uh, conquering Europe now after uh, the USA. Um, this is what I'd like to ask from them. You're a great cyclist and a passionate cyclist. Uh, all these Olympic sports uh, that seem to be getting picked off one by one by um, what I call the enlightened financiers of this world. I'm thinking about the swimming professional league. I'm thinking about CLGP. 
Uh, I'm not sure triathlon's an, uh, an Olympic sport, but you take my point. It is oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm uh, well. You know, there, there is commercialization of Ironman. You've got volleyball. With CBC have done a deal for volleyball. Yeah. So, so what the hell is the future of the IOC, Andrew? What, what does it exist for? Well, that's a good question. Well, I, I mean, let's have the debate about the you know the, the greatest sports show on earth is the is the Olympic Games. Uh, I mean, just to remind people what happened with um, the, the Olympic Games in Los Angeles, it was at the time of, you know, the massive problems with Russia and Moscow Games and all the rest of it. And the only people who were bidding were Los Angeles and um, Tehran, I think, it was gonna be, you know, or uh, Beirut or whatever it was. Anyway, it was, and the city of Los Angeles refused to... Um, have the games because they knew like Montreal, it could be, who are still paying for it. It could be a financial disaster. And Ubroth was the guy who said, I will guarantee that the city will not pay one cent towards this and, and I'll make it commercially viable. And somehow um, he did it and they had a great games. Um, I was, I was thinking about it in the context of, you know, where the Olympics goes and how cities get bid for now. And in the context, particularly of what we were talking about, Saudi Arabia is I think the world cup in Qatar could be a, a little watershed moment uh, coming back right back to what we said about fan experience and credible events and reference point venues. I'm just fearful with everything you read and hear about how difficult it is to get a visa and a ticket and a hotel room. And it's, it's chicken and egg and another chicken and another egg um, that, that people will go and enjoy it the way all those, you know, real great events that I've been to. I'm not, I'm not excited about it at all, though it'll probably be a good tournament on TV. But, you know, will there be empty seats? Will it be like Beijing, where they fill the stadium with soldiers, as they did, male and female? And uh, and you you just wonder now, and, and, and certainly, if anything was ever a disruptive moment in a world sports body, it was when Seth Blatter opened that envelope. Um, the, the disruption would be the understatement of the decade. I mean, it, it, it sort of it didn't destroy them, but certainly completely uh, changed. So, Andrew, the with, with, the two, with the two, the Olympic, let's go back to the Olympics, because I'm fascinated by this. It, it is often said that the Los Angeles saved the Olympic movement, and then there were, I think, the games after were Seoul and then into Barcelona. I'm not counting the Winter Games. I'm uh, They're less important to me. And then you start accelerating. Sydney was considered one of the greats. Athens, they got away with it. London, well, Beijing, muscle flexing, very scary. I remember the, the I was at, at the Beijing Games in 2008, and I genuinely thought that... Um, As was I, it was, yeah. It, was, it felt like being part of a military coup or something. But anyway, yeah, there, was was some, there were some great moments. And then London, maybe the, the very zenith of the celebration of the Games. And um, for all of all of, is good if you if you are a purist about sport. Do you think Paris becomes the savior of the Olympic movement? Um, French flair being what it is, a, a yeah. return to real cultural identity, a real sense of celebrations, or other fever and every other French cliche I can think of. Well, I mean, in the, terms you know, of it, when we were awarded it in two thousand and five in uh, Singapore, I think it was the uh, you know the French were the were the underbidder, and I'm sure just as I'm sure the Rugby World Cup will be great in France next year, I'm sure the Olympics in France will be great. I'm coming back to what you know, Grant was talking about earlier with, with the younger people, that the Olympics, Olympic Games has, does seem to slightly tie itself in knots about what is relevant to the modern audience, whatever that is. I think they've managed it quite well in the winter sports arena where there were some fairly simple choices of what to do with the, you know, with the 
snowboarding and moguls and all the rest of it, that's worked pretty well. I think in the summer games, they're still not quite sure what to do. Like, for example, modern pentathlon, um, some, you know, they've now got sport climbing in there. Squash has repeatedly tried to get in there. I'm going to make my prediction now that paddle tennis won't be far off because I think that will become, I think that's going to become a massive boom sport. Um but if you just keep bending over backwards to make things relevant to the but youth... bloody difficult to run a global sport like the greatest show on earth when you've got the governance and where they move at the speed of brontosauruses, where mm. they're all vested not to make that much change. Yeah. They sit there in that sort of Politburo blazer way that just looks terrifying to me. And they always seem to be playing catch-up. Oh, I know, we'll put in rock climbing because that might just catch, no no pun intended, we might just I mean, I, catch, I think hold that, on to the cliff edge. Yeah, you know, I think one of the other real problems is that I know why you would think that if you were an athlete, you, and if you were a swimmer, there's no question whatsoever that the peak of your career would be to win an Olympic gold medal. But there are certain sports where which are in the Olympics, where winning a gold medal is not the peak of your career. If you're a boxer, probably, or if you're a footballer or if you're a tennis player or you're a golfer it's not the peak of, of your career it is something it's quite nice to go and do it and golfers quite like to be there but it's not I mean football is the biggest by participation hours and attendances is the biggest sport at the, at the Olympics which is but it's not even played by the best players because it's played by the under 23s boxing is not best and I think the fact you've got the Olympic Games where you don't have the best practitioners in that sport and it is not the peak of their career to win a gold medal is is a, is a, is a difficult one but they face that since I mean that, that's not a new problem that's been a problem for some time um it, it, it's it's difficult I mean look at track and field I mean track and field has the reverse problem but all that athletics that you watch throughout the year, Diamond League and the rest of it, you know every single athlete is in the back of their mind is, I've got to win a world championship or I've got to win the Olympic gold or a Commonwealth gold maybe. But all the other stuff, whereas Giles, you and I were talking about it, is what you want to know is when you watch sport is that the, the teams and the individuals competing are going flat out every game. When you watch a Premier League football game, you watch an NFL game, you know they are going flat out for every inch, every yard, every goal, every tackle, period. And that's why we love it. You don't, you, you know, if you've got volume, like you've got, say, the NBA or the baseball, it's different. You know, you've just got a huge volume of games which are just designed to find out who the worst teams are and then we'll get on with the playoffs. And it seems to me that's what Simon Barnes always goes back to the Olympics, is what saves the Olympics, is that whether it's a sport that we don't see for four years in yeah. between Olympic Games, is that you know at that particular moment... Yep. in time that that gymnast or whatever it may be is reaching their moment where they could reach the pinnacle of their lives and that right. this is a moment it, and it becomes a human story as well as a performance story and that's what and, the olympic games i believe have to really focus in on at the moment i feel that, that this is i mean we've 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 knocked the ioc quite a lot over the last 4 years i just feel i don't know how you how you can run a modern um, sports organisation in the way that they're set up to do without it looking for what it is, which is um, playing catch-up and, and, and old exactly. school. But that's my well, I was thinking earlier, when Roger was talking about I was trying to think of an example about men's and women's pay and all the rest of it in the Olympics. But, of course, even there, you realise they're not there for the money. They're there for the medal. And, and however much money you get from your national association or whatever for winning a gold or a silver, it's, it's completely academic because, you know, when you win a gold medal, it's, it's life-changing. I mean, I know that 
a lot of these sports are in the Olympics because it's the way they get their funding through the national association in that country that they would not get the funding, say, for tennis in some third world country if they weren't an Olympic sport because that's that's the way sport is often financed. But you see, Andrew, this is my issue with it. Um, I think that they're hurting all these sports, the ones I mentioned that have been um, taken by the entrepreneurs now, like CLGP and everything like that. Giving somebody a, 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 a window for one moment in a four-year cycle with no ongoing narrative is a little bit like keeping them hooked on heroin. You know, you don't give them enough to die, or, um, but it's enough to keep them going. And these sports are not progressing. You know, you see, see stories every day. Oh, if we don't continue our IOC funding, we can't. What about working out your own business model, mate? You know, why don't you see whether you've actually got a market to appeal to a modern audience rather than hook on to a one in every four year jamboree and and, and have your hands out like Oliver uh, for the next uh, four years to, to make uh, make ends meet. I that of all the things in sport, that's the thing that I'm so pleased about that since they can't get their head around that. The guys like uh, Russell Coots, the guys like Ellison uh, uh, and, 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 and Michael Moritz at the PTO, they're just going to blow them away. And, you know, if they're listening to this, they don't listen to my kind of podcast, but if they listen to this, they will think I'm some kind of heretic. And and, and I, I, I just don't understand, Andrew, why, I mean, even in the answer there, well, it worked. It does, it's not about whether the jamboree every four years works. It's what happens to those sports in the intervening three years and 364 days. I agree. I agree with that. The sport that needs disruption is the one that's going on right now, cycling. Tour de France, my favourite event. And in what way? What expand on that? What do you what What would you do if you had all the money in the world? The weird thing about cycling is I I, I tried to think about it, but I I can't. There, there isn't another sport I don't think where its fortunes are com- so completely tied up in one event. It's like if the Masters had the only golf event in the world that was important, because the ASO is a commercial organisation. You know, they own newspapers and they started an event that's become the biggest event in the world. You cannot run a cycle team unless you compete in the Tour de France. Your starting point is, therefore, you're desperate to be invited to the Tour de France and the Amory family take money out of it. But they are not responsible for world cycling. The UCI is responsible for world cycling. And nothing ever changes. And nobody has, I mean, they tried. Jonathan Price, I'm just reading a, a book here. So nobody can see it, but then there it is. It's called Le Frick by Alex Duff. It's about the finances. And it starts off with Jonathan Price, who some of you will know, and Rothschilds, you know, pitching to the teams a plot whereby they would generate a certain amount of money for them and then they would go to the tour and everything. But um, people have been trying this for years and they don't get anywhere. I mean, you get 50, if you're a team that enters the Tour de France, you get 50,000 euros and they turn up for three weeks. I mean, it's pretty bizarre economics. And I think it, it, but it does need a Kerry Packer or an IPL or something. And people have tried, Velon tried it with their series, but it's a calendar that is so set in stone. It's very, very difficult to change anything at all. And unless you brought together ASO and the UCI and probably uh, Eurosport uh, and came up with some plot to change, 
you're in a bit as you as anyone who's a cycling fan and watches cycling on television, you'll see that nothing ever changes. I mean, it is it is the same all the time. Brilliantly covered, brilliantly covered in terms of actual producing outside broadcast. Amazing event, um, but it's. I think it's. A, I mean, I'm a massive fan of it, and I'd love it to be better and more widely seen. But it's a very difficult one to change, and you can't go to. There is no T20 route here because the classic events are three weeks long. And could you imagine in another sport if you said, "Well, we have three majors a year, but you can only play play in one because you physically can't do more than that." It, it, it's, a, it's a bizarre sport, but I love it. I love the events, but I, th- I think it needs. It could be bigger and better, and. And, and also the economics simply don't work. If you if you own, like, say, you're a Jim Ratcliffe or whatever, you can't make money running a cycling team because you've got no share of TV revenue and you've got no fan revenue for a start. So your only revenue is from sponsors and patrons and manufacturers, but that's a pretty small money. It, it, it's, it's a very strange one. I once, Andrew, I once was at one of these um, after-dinner things in Scotland. And, you know, you get comedians that some are better than others. So uh, I'll get I'll get to the cycling bit in a minute, but this is funny. Uh, so this guy comes on, uh, and it was a Scottish black tie thing, so kilts obviously are allowed and everything like that. So you get the idea, it's pretty formal, and he turns up, he's a kind of like John Smith, kind of like Edinburgh uh, advocate type, you know, figure, a little bit plump, uh, glasses, um, and he starts quite laconically uh, after dinner, lovely to be here and everything like this. And uh, then he says, um, sport, because obviously it was a football thing or a sports thing or something. Sport, um, you know, sport's got its challenges. You know, uh, one of the big challenges I think about the, the sport of cycling is the drugs. You know, and you know, you never really know who's won and who's deserved to win. I've got a suggestion for you. Let's just let all these fuckers take whatever they want and see how fast they can really go. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the Chinese did that in swimming, didn't they? And the East Germans <laughs> in athletics. So, and we, we found out, didn't we? And um, we did. Yeah. So, they, in fact, so anyone talking about transgender athlete, uh, you know, sport needs to, which I don't want to discuss. Just go back and look at the East German uh, women's track and field team back in the seventies. I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that's true. It was extraordinary. The transgenders uh, of their of their era. That's true, actually. Yes. Marina Koch. Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I've heard I've heard that argument before, and um, uh, funnily, uh, um, this is not a book club, but I'm I'm reading Daniel Friedman's book about Jan Ulrich, which is a fantastic read uh, because you know he was a product of the East German old style East German school, and then ended up competing in you know against the West. So it was uh, effectively Armstrong. And everything that went with Armstrong against Ulrich and everything that came from East Germany, and it is a it is a brilliant read if you if you want to understand something about the way that uh, cycling professional cycling works. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because they they are a bit like Formula One. There are sports where the action is what it's all about, and others where the soap is about. And I, th- I think the reason that, that the drive to survive has been so successful and had an influence on people is because up to now it was fairly masonic. Formula One, and if you didn't understand what was going on, it was completely meaningless. Now there are people who look watching it and going, Oh, yeah, I know who he is. I like, oh, I fancy that Lando Norris. If you saw him climbing on the fence yesterday, with all the kids waving their phones at him. I mean, it's very different from what it was, you know, a few years ago. And 
when you've got, and cycling is the same, it's the, it's the soap opera and the narrative that is the fascinating bit. That's why we had so much success with our GCN that you might remember, which is we did all the fiddly bits around the outside that you just simply weren't getting from the, the main broadcaster. Croaks, I've just looked at my watch. An hour has just shot past again, so that means... Don't tell you've... me we're going to have part three, because I think I'm, I'm pretty, pretty exhausted <laughs> now. I think I'm out. No, we, well, I know you've got a busy <laughs> summer of, of watching sport, going to all the great events and uh, and enjoying yourself as you do. On behalf of, of Roger Grant and I and all of the, the team at Are You Not Entertained, it really is lovely. You have been in the sports industry for, for such a long time, but you have such a a keen eye of not just what went before, but what perhaps will happen in the future. Um, so for us, it's just a joy to to, to have you back. Um, you are very much a, 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 a part of our family, and we hope very much that we'll see you at uh, Roger's very special event in Lake Como in September. Uh, yes, I am definitely coming um, to Lake Como in September. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm literally, funny enough, is, is a segue. I'm just off to play golf with Robbie McEwen. And if you're a cycling fan, you'll know... Um, who he is, and uh, he's an Australian, isn't he? He is, he is an Australian. He is an Australian and, and a top bloke, a very, very good bloke. And if you if you want, he's he's commentating on um, Eurosport slash GCN uh, at the moment, which is where you should be watching the Tour de France. Uh, it's wonderful, Giles. I'll see you in Saint Andrews. You will. I look forward next to it. week. You should you be will. there, Roger. It's Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, listen, I'll try. guys. Um, I'll give you my joke of the week. Yes. This is Barry Cryer's last joke. I don't know if you heard it. Go on. Oh, go on. There's a couple walking down a village high street and there's a sort of scruffy bloke walking the other way. And the wife says, isn't that the Archbishop of Canterbury? And he says, I don't know. I'll go, I'll go and find out. So he goes over there and he comes back and she says, what did he say? Um, he told me to fuck off. She said, now we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Great to see you, Andrew. I love it. Cheers, Andrew. Bye, guys. Well, Giles, uh, thanks for doing that. That was great. Well, he's uh, been there and done it, which is, um, and it is interesting as so much is going on, you know, the, the macro that Grant refers to, but also just the busyness and sport. Uh, we live in, continue to live in very exciting times and God knows what we'll be talking about in a year, but it undoubtedly will have changed yet again. What did you think, Grant? You missed part one? You missed part I one? I did miss part one. I mean, I listened to it, obviously, and, and was uh, was extremely upset that I couldn't be part of the conversation. So it's nice to have a chance to jump in at the tail end, as it were. But um, no, it's, it's fascinating. You know, it's, it's it's so good, Rose, to speak to um, guys with, with this kind of tenure in the industry who've, who've seen the ebbs and flows, have seen the, you know, the overall tailwinds that the sport has had in the age of TV. Um, and try and get a perspective because, you know, you, you, your your perspective is becoming, um, fr- from having been a, a real outlier four years ago, there are m- many more people coming around to your way of thinking, um, I think, than, than even I thought was going to happen. So it's interesting when, when you get a chance to hear guys with that kind of experience um, offer their thoughts on it. Great. So let's wrap up, shall we? I guess we should, yes. Uh, thanks to our guest, Andrew Croker, for once again giving up an hour of his life to come and talk to the three of us this time. Um, our thanks to you, as always, for listening. Um, I haven't asked this for a while, but if you do get a chance, please rate and review the podcast in the iTunes store. That would be extremely helpful. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter if you're not doing so already. You'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E. Myself, I am available to be followed. Should you wish to lead yourself over some kind of cliff edge, you'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. 
And you can find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71 on Twitter. And you can find myself at RPM Como as in the Lake of Como. As in the Lake of Como this time. A bit more, a bit more granular detail there for us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gentlemen, yeah, yeah. as always, tremendous fun. Let's do it again. What do you say? Great.